Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. There are uh, a lot of different ways of marking time. You've probably noticed that by now. In uh, the Western world, the United States in particular, we have a tendency to measure time from January 1st to December 31st, and we call that a year. Fifty years ago yesterday, this sanctuary was dedicated to the glory of God and for use in ministry among the people of Lewiston. Isn't that beautiful? I think so. Uh, with some weeks that had multiple church services, and um, there are community groups that, that use our facilities as well. Um, we're somewhere around 4,000 times that people have gathered in these pews in which you are sitting today to give glory to God, to pray and ask Him for great things. They, they've listened to, to sermons, and they've invited God to come and, and change their lives. Can you imagine the thousands and thousands of people over the last 50 years who have come to know the Lord Jesus and surrendered their lives to his control sitting in the square footage that we occupy today? It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I, uh, I wonder if there's anybody here today who was here on the day of the dedication. Yeah, right back there. Fantastic. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the faith that you all had. The, the investment in money and time that it took to build this place must have been an immense thing back then. And your faithfulness all these years later here worshiping with us, um, we give thanks today. Am I running out of battery here, guys, or am I just not hugging it enough? It's all me. Okay, batteries are good. Cliff, not so much. Uh, the passing of time, we're talking about that, right? How the Westerners measure it in uh, January 1 to December 31, how we've marked off 50 of those years in this sanctuary. But somewhere in February of each year, I get surprised by my friend Roland. He lives in China, and in the middle of February, he will go to Facebook and make a few phone calls, and he will wish all of his friends a happy Chengjie, Chinese for New Year. And it seems kind of late to me and sort of lackluster. And then somewhere in September, when I'm starting to think about hunting season, it seems like the Jewish community sort of jumps the gun and they, they celebrate their Rosh Hashanah, which means New Year in Hebrew. Seems kind of early and lacks a little bit of the oomph that New Year's kind of brings for me in the way that I've learned to mark time. Then there's our friends, the Mayans, who apparently quit marking time altogether three years ago. You know, the good thing about being a Mayan now is that you're never late for anything, right? You know, never feel hurried. Christians down through the ages have had a, a, a very different way of marking time, different than all of the cultures around us and the cultures in which Christians have lived. Did you know that there's a Christian calendar? You're probably not going to get one from the parts store or the auto dealership, but there's a Christian calendar, a way that the Christians historically have measured off time and the years. And uh, on the Christian calendar, today is New Year's Day. So, Happy New Year's. Everybody forgot their little noisemakers, right? Caught you off guard. Happy New Year's, Christians. And we've uh, historically celebrated this day as New Year's Day, and it has begun a season that we call Advent. Advent, initially, was all about 
focusing on the promised return of Christ, what Pam was talking to us about earlier. Advent is not the Christmas season. Advent is the, the, the pregnant pause of the church, holding its breath in anticipation of this great day that Christ makes good on the promise that he made to us 2,000 years ago to return to us. So Christians early, early on said the best way to start the new year is by grabbing a hold of the promise of the glory that is to come, the return of Christ. Immediately on the heels of that, they would also celebrate his first coming and would give thanks. But somewhere along the way, Christians sort of, oh, uh, got enamored with Christmas, and Christmas sort of took over the Advent season. And I have a sneaking suspicion that if I preach my very best Advent sermon series, I'm still not going to be able to change the way that people think about that. So... This is one of those, if you can't beat them, join them kind of moments. So I say, let's start the march toward Christmas. What do you think? Three people going to Christmas with me. Great. You seem seem to be not all that excited uh, after Black Friday. I don't know. I want to take, however, a slightly different path toward Christmas this year. Most years during the Advent season, we turn our attention back to the Old Testament prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah, And then we take a look at the Gospels and their incredible accounts of the birth of Jesus and all of the miracles that surrounded that. It's a right and fitting way for us to approach Christmas. I just want to take a little bit different path there this year. You remember the part of the story of the Magi or or the wise men from the East who came in search of Jesus? They stand out because of the, uh, the idea of, um, of them being exotic peoples, astrologers and members of some foreign court. And we've kind, of, we've kind of layered all kinds of legend on top of that so that there's kind of a ooh about the Magi. But the truth is the Bible tells the story of lots of people who took long journeys in search of a redeemer. The Magi were not the first. It includes several stories that help us to understand one thing that's true about humanity. People are looking for a redeemer. Always have been and always will be. Do you know what it is that usually brings people to the place that they will finally start looking for a redeemer? It's usually desperation. And that's where our story begins today. And I'd like for us to read the first part of it. Please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. As we turn our attention to your word, Lord, we, uh, we are coming to a sacred book. Not a magical one. It has human fingerprints all over it. But it also has the breath of your Holy Spirit behind it. And so we're asking that you would get involved with this very human document today. That you, Lord, would call out what it is we need to understand as we read it. For some of us, We will have read this story many, many, many times. And with familiarity comes that tendency to just kind of nod and go along. But instead, Lord, today, would you make this thing rattle and hum? It's your story. It's one of your favorite parts of the story, I'm convinced, because it takes broken people and weaves them right into your story. Broken people like us. Maybe, maybe we can find our way with these people to a Redeemer. Would you help us? We pray in your holy name. Amen. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or, or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Elimelech was a man who had hopes and dreams because he was just a man. He was like all the rest of us. 
We grow up thinking that life will probably be pretty good. We dream of loving and of being loved and of settling down with someone, not settling for someone. We dream of children, not of infertility. We dream of a beautiful family and success. We dream of comfort, not of scraping by and barely hacking out an existence out of the dust. Elimelech was like you and me, and so he dreamed for all of those things as well. It's just that, well, like with some of us, it just didn't turn out that way. I think from reading the story that he got the girl that he hoped for, and pretty soon there were some sons that were born into their home. But it seems that that's about as far as the dream went for them, and then it came to a screeching halt. Much has been made about the practice of choosing names, naming children. In the U.S., we typically name kids something either because it sounds cool or because we have a relative that we were naming them after. The Israelites, like so many ancient and primitive cultures, were in a different practice. They were in the practice of naming their children based on meaning. They'd give them some name that meant something else. Forget how it sounded. It meant something else. And that meaning was either prophetic in nature, that is, they were, they were saying something about those kids and about what they hoped would be the case for their character or for their destiny one day. Or sometimes they named their children just based on very powerful feelings that they were experiencing at the time. Something apparently bad, 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 bad was happening in Elimelech's and Naomi's lives. It would seem that their sons were born sickly, not, not healthy, not vigorous, not strong. Some of you have been through that. Is there anything, anything in this life that is harder on young parents than watching their children suffer and struggle with disease? The only thing harder is if those children end up dying, right? Elimelech and Naomi were people with broken hearts and probably with some fear about their children's survival. We happen to know that at the time the boys were born, Israel was going through a famine. Famine is usually caused by drought that has lasted years, and it produces a shortage of food that also lasts for years. It doesn't go away quickly. In Elimelech's and Naomi's day, there was another contributing factor beyond the weather. There was this neighboring nation, Moab, and from from time to time in in this section of Israel's history, the Moabites had decided that they were going to kind of stick it to the people of Israel. They were a neighboring nation, and they would send raiding parties across the border to come and steal food and to steal livestock and to burn some cities. Their horses and livestock came with them, and sometimes instead of raiding parties, it looked like hordes, just giant masses. Sometimes they brought the women and children and all of the livestock with them as well. And the Moabites, between the soldiers and their horses and their livestock and their camps, were trampling the Israelite crops. And what they didn't eat or trample, they would light on fire and burn to the ground. Their intent was to starve the Israelites out into weakness, bring them to their knees. And it was working. And it was into these circumstances that Elimelech's and Naomi's sons were born. 
They'd had these hopes. They'd had these dreams. The future had once held all kinds of promise like it does for us. But then came the drought, and then came the famine, and then came the Midianites, and then came the boys. How deep in the hole are you as young parents if you name your two boys sickly and withering away? That's Malan and Killian. It means sickly and withering away. See, it was getting to the point that something or someone was going to have to give, and, and none of the prayers was ending the drought. None of the prayers was keeping the Midianites at bay. None of the prayers was bringing wheat up out of the parched earth, and none of the prayers was bringing any manna down from heaven. No magical provision from God either. The circumstances didn't give, and so Elimelech figured that he was going to have to. But what he did, I am convinced, is unfathomable to you and me. There is not a single person in this room today who would do what Elimelech did, which probably just means that none of us has really been as desperate as that man was on that day. He moved, the scriptures say, his young family to Moab. And for you and I to, to feel what that must have been like, we would have to imagine packing the kids, packing the stuff, and heading to Iran or Afghanistan. See, Moab was the absolutely most detested enemy of Israel at this period in their history, a historic enemy, because Moab had actually tried to call down curses from God upon Israel years ago when they were making their trek to the promised land because Moab had intentionally sought to turn God against his own people and bring about their ultimate destruction. God had made a decree. He decreed that Moab would forever, forever be the enemies of Israel. And even individual Moabites who ended up taking a liking to Israeli people and Israeli culture, who immigrated into the country, even individuals of a like mind, would be denied the possibility of converting to the Jewish faith and becoming part of the people of God. Get this, for 10 generations... For 10 generations after some Moabite showed interest in Israeli life, interest in Jewish faith, for 10 generations, they and their family would still be forbidden. They could live in the land, but at arm's length, and with all of the prejudices appertaining thereto. So whichever nation it is that you think of when you think of our nation's most hated enemy, that's where you and your spouse, and your sickly kids would have to pack up and move to. I wonder how bad it would have to get in the L.C. Valley for you to think that the place to take refuge is Iran. How do you like your kids' chances in Afghanistan? Anybody want to trade places with the Limelech today? I don't in any way want to minimize the fact that some of you are suffering and hurting today. But I think it's okay to ask that we all honestly consider the question, would you ever want to trade places with the Elimelech? Because that man was desperate. Remember I mentioned the word desperation earlier in the message? What was it I said earlier that the desperation drives people to? 
It, it drives them to look for somebody who can help, somebody who can inject their resources and their power and their compassion into the situation and kind of up the ante and, and, and buy them back. Redeem's a word that means to buy something back or, or to regain possession of something, but you have to pay for it. Whatever else the Bible may or may not be about, it's about redemption from beginning to end. It's about a God who has lost possession of people he loves. They're no longer his. It's about people finding out that they've been lost by God, separated from him and wanting to reconnect. It's about problems. There's always problems that get in the way between people who want to connect with God and God who wants to connect with people. And the Bible is about the problems that stand in the way of that. Who's willing to pay the price of redemption? What is the price of redemption? How do you pay it? Who is it paid to? It's not enough to just say, I want a redeemer. Limelech and his countrymen had been looking for a redeemer, living in Israel, living in Judah, praying, asking God to send somebody who would know how to fix this, maybe come down himself. God the rainmaker is real popular among farmers during droughts. But no redeemer came to them. You get the picture? People who say, oh, I get it. We need God and we need his help. And so they cry out. And God didn't come. And he didn't send anyone either. It was plain to the people that they were disconnected from God. Seemed like he was uh, turning his back on them at least and quite possibly had left them and left their land altogether. See, at this point in uh, the development of human civilization, particularly in the Middle East, gods were seen as territorial. There was a God who was over every piece of land, some vast and some small. Gods who lived within one nation only. And Israel was among the people who believed that. And so when their land and their people had very clearly been given over to devastation, they deduced that Yahweh, their God, had left them and had left their land and had found new people and found a new place to live. Nobody was making any excuses. They all knew that God had a right to do such a thing because of the way they had treated him, but it didn't fix their problem. And repenting, in this case, didn't fix it either. And that's why Elimelech decided on that day with his wife and his two sickly sons that it was time to move on. Maybe they could move to the the, the land where God had gone to. Pick one, go there, see if maybe God favored them. When they saw that the Midianites had so much more strength than they did, they thought maybe God's adopted the Midianites. Maybe God moved to the other side of the lake. It's time to move on and to try to find him or, or maybe find someone or some other God who would redeem them from their bondage to Midian and to famine. So Elimelech and Naomi packed up the two youngins, now teens, because remember, years had gone by, this famine caused by years of drought, and what little they had, he packed up the kids and his wife and what little they had, and they left the supposed promised land because it no longer held any promises for anybody, and and headed to Moab. 
Moab. How desperate do you have to be to move to the land of your enemies? That little family was joining a long list of refugees, vulnerable people, weak and desperate. They thought they'd go to Moab, maybe start over. That was the plan, you know, find a little place that he could rent, find a job, work hard, feed his family, keep a roof over their heads. Maybe if things went well and at the end of year one, they'd be, they'd be even. And, and maybe in year two, they'd be able to afford a little bit of food and, and maybe some money in the bank and saving for that day that he could get his own place with, with his own acreage that he could till with his own hands and grow his own food and some, some crops for some money on the side. And it was a decade-long plan. The plan was that just, just follow it meticulously, be disciplined, keep seeking the favor of the God of the area. And it, according to their plan, it looked like about year 11, it would all work out. But it was in year eight or thereabouts that, that Elimelech bought the farm. And by that, I don't mean that he had saved a little extra and gotten ahead of schedule, but using that phrase in the indelicate way that we sometimes refer to death, Elimelech bought the farm. He died. And this is a great Christmas story, Pastor Cliff. Where's the candy? It's a tragic story of hopes dashed, of promises that were never fulfilled, never realized. It's a story that went from bad to worse. It's a story of if you work really hard, maybe you'll get further behind. And then... And the central character of the story dies? You've got to be kidding me. And yet he's not the most unfortunate person in the story. It isn't a Limelech who got a raw deal. It's Naomi, his widow. Mother of two young men now, two young men who needed marriages arranged for them. A despised refugee woman whose husband had worked his family up from that bottom rung of refugee all the way up to hated foreigners who didn't belong here, who were ruining our country, who ought to go back to their land. That's how Naomi was living. They'd hoped that they'd find God or that maybe he would find them. Neither of those things happened. There was no redeemer in Israel. There was no redeemer in Moab. Just a frightened widow who had nowhere to turn. The thing that she and Elimelech had feared the most in Israel had now followed them and their family to Moab and had claimed her husband. And now the boys had gotten married which should be a good thing, but when you're an Israelite and you're living in Moab, you marry Moabite women, right? Which guarantees that now, from this day forward, 10 successive generations of your children and grandchildren will be alienated from God, period. The the last chance to reconnect with God had just vanished, and Naomi sunk under the weight of it. There was no promise in Moab except... 
except broken promises. Which is exactly what she concluded because it was confirmed on each of the two days that she went to her son's funerals. You know how this goes. For the next few months, letters started coming in. In the the letters that, that came her way after the people back in Israel had learned that Elimelech and Malan and Killian had all died, Naomi began to hear about how things there were were getting better. Things were getting a little bit better back home, particularly in their hometown of Bethlehem. The Midianites had, for the most part, given up raiding that far in, and the fall before there had been some rain, and there was some rain in the spring, a few people had held on to enough seed, had managed not to eat it, so they'd had a little bit to plant in the spring, and the crop was looking good. People began to whisper around Israel and Judah, maybe God has come back. Maybe he hasn't forgotten us after all. But no one was willing to bet on it just yet. Part of one year into the good stuff. No one except Naomi, that is. See, when you have absolutely nothing to lose, you can afford to gamble really, really big. So she did. And one day she made the decision that she was going to pack up and move back to Israel to her hometown in Bethlehem. She would have relatives there. There was probably still some property in Elimelech's name that she might be able to find her way to own again. Maybe she would find God. And maybe God would decide to help her once she got back to his land. Maybe. Maybe. But if not... At least she wouldn't die as a hated foreigner in a distant land. We don't know famine. We don't know enemy invasions. We don't know 10 years of refugee living. Thankfully, most of us in here don't even know firsthand what it means to lose a spouse. Some do. Fewer yet of us know what it means to lose a child. I hope none of us knows the pain of losing all of our children. When you put those things together, I I, I simply cannot fathom the hurt and the pain, sorrow and the doubt in Naomi's heart. I don't want to stand in Elimelech's shoes and I don't want to stand in Naomi's either. I've never been that desperate. I don't know her desperation, but I do know a version of it. My own. I ran up against it pretty hard back in April. I watched my little sister slowly dying. You know your desperation too. You may have never told another living soul about it, but you have some, some desperation. All of us do. Maybe it's a marriage that just didn't turn out like you thought that it would. Maybe it's gone horribly bad. Maybe it's a wayward son or daughter who wants nothing to do with you, your God, your faith, your anything. Maybe you know the desperation of growing up under abusive or neglectful parents. Adults, don't dismiss it. School can be a desperate place 
for our teens and our children. Maybe uh, your work makes you desperate. Or maybe it's the fact that you don't have any work that leaves you desperate. You've got money problems. Maybe it's just the collection of little or not so little things, but over time, they've piled up on you. They haven't been resolved. No one's come and taken them away, and you're beginning to feel a little bit desperate. If so, I know what you need. You need a Redeemer. You need someone who will step into the situation, somebody who has the horsepower and the resources needed to change something for you. In your vulnerability, you need someone who's got more strength than you do. In your vulnerability, you need someone with more resources. You need somebody who will take compassion on you, hopefully not pity, but you might settle for that if you're really desperate. You need someone who wants to enter into your troubles with you at least wade into your troubles with you and hopefully help you begin to solve them one by one. As we begin our journey toward Christmas, wouldn't it be fun to just focus for the next three weeks on the festivity and the joy of a little bitty baby Jesus? Put some cute little kids up here in costumes. I'd like that. But that's not how searches for redeemers ever start. They don't start with cute. And they don't start with fun. They start by acknowledging vulnerability and weakness and needs, real needs and inability. Maybe you've never used that word desperate in referring to yourself. Maybe you really couldn't use it to describe yourself today. Perhaps you have a thriving relationship with the God who made you, who has redeemed you. He's interjected his personal resources into your equation as a way of buying you back to himself, and he's redeeming your troubles along the way. But if that's the case, each year, this time, as we renew our journey, we must revisit this theme of our lives. We are a people who are in need of a redeemer. We always will be. We give praise, those of us who know relationship with the Holy God through faith in Jesus. We give praise that he has saved us, that he has redeemed us. But let us never forget that we continue to be a people who continue to be in need of a Redeemer. This morning I suggest that we take a first step, like Naomi did, in the direction of a Redeemer. We very intentionally set out on a journey together that will take us through these next few weeks and deliver us on Christmas Sunday at a place where we can rightfully celebrate with real and heartfelt joy, not just relief that the season's over. Because we have found a Redeemer having first acquainted ourselves with the fact that we need one. Let's take the first step on that journey together today by reflecting on our personal vulnerability, our weakness, our need, our inability. Let me ask you a question this morning. What do you need that you cannot provide for yourself right now? That thing constitutes your need for a Redeemer. 
Maybe there's 10 things for you that you need that you can't do for yourself. Together, they build a case that you, like me, are a person who is in need of a Redeemer. So as we conclude our service today, let's take ourselves and let's take our needs before God today, acknowledging that for all the joy of this season, it begins in desperation, in need. Let's pray and let's tell God why we're seeking him again this Advent season, even though we already found him, many of us, years ago. Knowing that he is the God who meets us in our place of need. Stand with me, please, and bow your heads and close your eyes. Noah, would you come and just play some music softly for me, please, while we pray? Lord, As we bow our heads, I want to make sure that we intentionally do that with our hearts as well. It's a posture, but it's not merely posing. It's us putting ourselves in the position, both of reverence before you because of your greatness, and humbling ourselves before you, Acknowledging our need. In a few Sundays, there will be a time of great rejoicing in this place. But if the rejoicing is going to be authentic, then it must it must come from somewhere. For many of us, joy comes at the end of a long journey that isn't very joyful. Father, my friends, some this year have walked a very long and painful and dry journey. But I'm not just talking about a friend. I'm talking about me. Hardest year of my life. I am a man who is in need of a Redeemer. I need you to I need you to solve some things, Lord. I need some answers. I need some direction. And I need you to help me with my pain and sorrow. I give you thanks that I'm nowhere near as desperate as Elimelech was the day he left Israel and that I'm, I'm nowhere close to where Naomi was the day that she headed back there. In the scheme of things, My life is blessed indeed. But there are some hollow spots, Lord, that are dark and cold. And I want to invite you into my desperation today. Together we're going to do that, Lord. Private prayers. Whispered between our hearts and yours. We're going to tell you about our desperation. Lord, hear our prayers.
was thinking, Lord, that you've probably never been desperate. But I think I talked myself out of believing that. Because I think you remain desperate to this day. Desperately hoping that people will turn to you in their time of need. Desperately hoping that people will look to you for help. Desperately hoping that you will get the chance to do life with us, to wade into the mess with us, to stand in the puddle of our tears with us. You're the God who has everything and still is desperate for his people. Praise your holy name, desperate God. And that you make room for desperate men like me. Some of my friends have asked for healing. I echo their prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. Some of my friends have asked that joy could return. They've done enough crying and enough waiting. I echo their prayer and I ask in Jesus' name that you would anoint them with the oil of joy again. Let laughter return to their hearts and to their homes. If friends who have a big question mark out in front of them, what's next? Don't know what to do. Don't know how we're going to get by, how we're going to do the next thing. I invite you into my friend's questions, Lord. For some, Lord, it's not time yet to stop grieving. I invite you into our grief. Ask that you would bring healing when it's time comfort until then. Jesus, Messiah, Redeemer, you came to us and you promised to send your spirit to us. We we desperately ask that you'd make good on the promise. Holy Spirit, come. And join us on this Advent journey. From desperation to redemption. May we all find it in you. Pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, my friends, You've got some steps to take this week. We took one together today. As you leave this place, understand that the Holy Spirit of God goes with you. Let him guide you on your journey. So may you experience light and peace.